Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Brian. And this is the Quacks Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Today I have Dr. Leland Stillman back on the show. I did an interview with him just a few episodes ago. It was a great interview. Uh, If you haven't listened to it, please do, as it will give you some background to today's episode. Now, in that interview, we started talking about the medical industry and how messed up it has become, but we didn't really have the time to kind of get into it. So I decided to follow up with him and get a more in-depth view of what is going on out there and how someone can navigate it, pitfalls and all. At one point uh, in this interview, we actually talk... So... I decided to follow up with him and get a more in-depth view of what is going on out there and how someone can navigate it with all the pitfalls in modern medicine. And somehow, and someone can navigate modern medicine with all those pitfalls. At one point, we talk about the specific therapies uh, that are out there targeting women in particular and then men in particular, which could be really big traps. All in all, It was an awesome interview, so enjoy the show. Dr. Leland Stillman, thanks for coming back on the show, man. Thanks for having me. So we're going to have a pretty interesting show today. This has kind of been a dream of mine for a while, which is we actually get into like behind the scenes, what's going on in the medical doctor uh, side of this whole health world. And and you're going to give us hopefully some, some really interesting insights and hopefully how we can navigate uh, this this whole world better. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, some. Um, we're going to talk about how the sausage is made. That's right. That's right. Who was that? Was that Bismarck? I think who said that uh, you shouldn't see two things being done: laws made or sausages made. I think that was Bismarck. I don't know, but that sounds funny. Yeah, he said there's two things you should never see being made, and that's laws or sausages. Wow, that's <laughs> remarkable. Um, yeah, the faint of heart should turn this podcast off now. All right. So before we kind of dive into the nitty gritty, maybe you can give us an outline of what we're going to be talking, like maybe the major players of our medical system, you know, the insurance companies, the pharma, uh, Medicare, doctors, staff, just, just kind of maybe an outline. You know what? We really have to start with errors in decision-making and like mistakes that people make. Um, and then we're going to talk about why that sets people up for creating a system that doesn't work and then thinking the system doesn't work for all the wrong reasons and then doubling down on the bad thinking that created the dysfunctional system and basically the process by which the system then circles the drain and then ultimately implodes. And we're like at that implosion, you know, point where the system just doesn't work at all anymore. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Let's jump in. All right, cool. So, um, in, in residency, there was a, uh, that's my, my training after medical school, there was a really interesting adage that a professor of mine shared with us. He said, a quarter of your patients will get better because of what you do. A quarter of your patients will get better uh, regardless of what you do. A quarter of your patients will get worse regardless of what you do. And a quarter of your patients will get worse because of what you do. And those numbers are obviously not exact. And one would like to think that, you know, an intelligent, rational human being could make better numbers than that. But the simple reality is that if you look at the history of medicine, it's peppered with all these different controversies and confusions and noise, right? I mean, we used to treat syphilis by bathing people in mercury. Yeah. We used to treat, um, you know, uh, like, what was I reading about the other day? It was like, they were, they said that you could treat Oh, that's right. In Rome, they used to treat epileptics by drinking the blood, freshly spilled blood of gladiators, right? So people get these really crazy, really out there, unbelievably wild ideas about what's going to make them better. And you still see this today. I mean, it's not like we've gotten any better at this, right? Like you see people signing up for the weirdest, strangest, most remarkable things. And I think we have a shared fascination for all the wacky stuff that people you know, have done. And I, I talk to my patients about this stuff and I'm very open with them and I don't judge them for all the wacky stuff they do, which they love because most doctors are like, 
you're not signing up for the algorithm, what's wrong with you? Um, but I understand why people are skeptical of that algorithm. They see a lot of bad outcomes, and I have too. And I at least, you know, ha haven't seen the kind of success that one would like to see in mainstream medicine. And so anyway, people make crazy decisions about what therapies they should get and why. And then they'll also fool themselves into thinking that something is working. So a lot of people in alternative medicine like to, you know, trash the mainstream because all the mainstream wants to do is say that alternative medicine is like all of it is just placebo. And mm -hmm. there's a certain truth to that. Um, now, you know, there's also an intellectual argument to be had about, well, who cares if it's placebo, right? We're getting paid and the patients want us to get them better. So if you can trick somebody into getting better, does that make you a morally bad person? Is that wrong? Mm. Um, I'm not going to get into that because it's just like a whole other question. But at the end of the day, people make these crazy, they have these crazy idea, ideas about what's good for them and what they should should engage in. And I'm not going to name any like names, but this gets into some very culty type stuff. Um, you know, where people are signing up for, you know, sort of, I call it therapy to nowhere. It's like these like self-improvement cults where it's like, you're paying for them to make you better in a very abstract sense. Mm, yes. And, you know, and, and so that's kind of one extreme, right? But the other like piece of that, right, is like, just because I'm doing tangible, concrete procedures like an MRI or a PET scan or a colonoscopy or whatever doesn't necessarily imply that I'm making people better, right? Do Like Hippocrates said, uh, and he's not famous for saying this. This is an obscure Hippocrates quote. He said, sometimes to do nothing is a good remedy. And he's totally right. Hmm. So people are set up to want to do all these crazy outlandish things and um, people who who want to know more about this really just need to like open some history of medicine textbooks because they'll be shocked at what they find. And so this goes back to really the fact that humans are atrociously bad decision makers. I like to joke with people that we're smart enough to dominate the planet, but we're not smart enough to do it in a graceful, happy, agreeable way. We're fighting with one another constantly. We have all these bad ideas about what good medicine is, so on and so forth. Um, for people who really want to understand just how like colossal this problem is, they need to go back and read what happened in World War One. Like hundreds of thousands of lives were basically thrown away using the same tactics for several years. And the people who did it sat in chateaus drinking wine while the guys who were doing it got shot. So people need to kind of dispense with their pretensions about being able to like pick really good therapies. And I frankly had to do this myself because as a physician, you know, I've thought, oh, this is a good therapy. I ought to do this. And then I did more research or I questioned the dogma that I'd been taught. And I thought, whoa, if I was in that position again, I would do something radically different. Or, wow, my colleagues over here are missing this or that or the other thing. And, you know, my blogs on um, sunscreen, sunlight, indoor lighting are some of the most counterintuitive for people or, or really I should say contrarian that people find. But diving into stuff like that has given me more and more confidence that we're really, we're getting confused and our thinking is bad as far as what keeps us healthy. Now, what happens is that people end up thinking that someone else needs to regulate the medical industry. There needs to be licensure, there need to be standards, there need to be this, there need to be that. And I think that when you get into what happens then is exactly what happened in this country. So in the 1911, the Flexner report was commissioned by, I think it was John D. Rockefeller. And this report was a report on the state of American medical education. And to make a long story short, this led to an increasing amount of regulation over American medicine. Now, before that, it was, you know, the Wild West. It was, everyone could do anything. You could hang out your shingle if you had zero training. And so there were obviously a lot of people doing a lot of questionable, inappropriate, unethical things, right? But the premise that making the government in charge of this will reduce corruption is extremely flawed, right? And you have kind of counterexamples throughout history where you get these late stage empires like Rome where they have all these laws and all these rules and this great, you know, they have a wonderful language and they have science and they have amazing engineering. I mean, Rome was a really amazing society, right? Yeah. But Tacitus is famous for saying the more numerous the laws, the more corrupt the government. So 
The idea that we have laws and regulations and licensure boards to keep us safe from snake oil is a really dubious premise. What ended up happening is something that most people don't understand, which is something called agency capture. Agency capture is a, is just a an easy way to say when you regulate a corporation or you give the government the authority to regulate a corporate or a, a corporation or a group of corporations or any kind of economic activity, the people who are engaged in that have an economic incentive to bribe and control the government. Now they can do this in a wide variety of ways, right? But here in America, basically the way that they do it is they fund campaigns. And when there was no, um, when there was no real government oversight of private industry and private medicine, there was basically no lobbying. And actually the word lobbyist, which is famous today and much, they're much loathed, right, actually originated in the term of Ulysses S. Grant. Hmm. These, the term comes from men who would st- sit around or, and l- lounge around in the lobbies of Washington, D.C. hotels looking for people they could influence and effectively bribe to get federal government dollars for whatever they wanted. And people don't understand or they don't, aren't taught that before the Civil War, the federal government of the United States had very little to do with what are called internal improvements. And after the Civil War, part of Lincoln's vision, and during the Civil War too, was that the federal government would have an incredible role to play, that there would be very high tariffs, that he would extract you know, uh, monies from you know, free people and that he would then spend them on railroads and whatever. And Grant and his successors continued this. And that's why, for example, we built the Transcontinental Railroad. That that was all government. A lot of that was government funding. Hmm. What people should know is that there's another railroad. Uh, I think it's so the uh, the great, I want to say it's the Great Northern Railroad. Okay. Uh, was built with all private funds, all privately, you know, raised. So, you know, there's this theme running in that's going to run through this conversation where basically giving the government power does not necessarily make everything better. Yeah. So if I kind of understand what you're saying, basically yeah. you're saying that the treatments that we're looking at, healthcare in general has this this almost 50-50 thing. I've, I've been uh, listening to Montaigne's essays and there's a doctor in there. So this is from like the 1500s. And one of the doctors says, mm. uh, you know, sometimes even the sight of medicine will will make a patient revive. Um, and so there's this element of medicine, which is just treating somebody a percentage of the time works. And, and so it's very tricky to understand what treatments are good and which ones are bad. And, and we're even bad at picking which ones are good and which ones are bad. And so that the, the, the government regulation that you're talking about kind of exacerbates this problem. Is that kind of where we're headed? Right. But it also creates the opportunity for a industry full of nefarious, greedy people to control the government and say, okay, if we can make all the other treatments illegal, then we'll make tons of money. So now illegal is hard to get, hard to make happen. It's also very blatant. So the strategy is more of a kind of like, uh, it's like a soft band, steel fist and a velvet, velvet glove. Yeah. So let me give you some examples from agriculture because I actually did my honors thesis in college on, on factory farms. So what would happen with factory farming was the different, the reason that we have factory farms in this country that no one really wants to talk about. I mean, they all want to just like dump on Smithfield foods or whatever. And this is directly analogous to the pharmaceutical industry, as I'll get to in a minute. But basically different states passed different laws that gave different you know, farming modalities advantages there. And then the federal government spent tons of money on cheap corn. So that became cheaper than pasturing the animals. Then they fatten the animals up on cheap corn in states that have laws that are favorable to the farmers. And all of a sudden, you have a situation where 50% of the hogs in the United States are being produced in four different states. To give people an idea of what kind of a problem that is, I don't remember off the top of my head, but there's something like tens, tens of millions of hogs raised in the United States each year. Okay, I want you to imagine that you put several New York cities in four different states and there's no sewage system to deal with their refuse. Hmm. That's what modern factory farming is. It's hundreds of millions of animals producing this effluvium nonstop uh, all the time in very concentrated geographic areas. Okay. To, to explain how that works in 
And that's part of like why medicine is so messed up is that, you know, cheap food is unhealthy food in this country because the government controls agriculture in a really just bizarre and nonsensical, frankly, fascist way. In healthcare, what happened was the pharmaceutical industry realized that they could control bodies like the FDA and then they could create a perfect situation for them to make lots of money by making it really hard for anybody else to compete. And they really, when you go into say in, in, in a medical school and you talk to the professors there, they're all really on board with drug therapy. And the reason is, is pretty simple. The research that's getting done and the research priorities are all organized around this really philosophical uh, school of medicine, which is, you know, called Western medicine, allopathic medicine, orthodox medicine, whatever you want to call it. But it's really based on drugs and surgeries. And everybody else who wanted to try and heal people in American history basically got excluded and marginalized by this mainstream medical establishment through state medical licensing boards and the economic and really political lobbying of the pharmaceutical industry and then later medical device you know manufacturers mm-hmm. who are who are have the same basic profit model as the pharmaceutical industry so that's really how the system got so corrupted um which i find deeply ironic because a lot of people who like alternative medicine want more government control they're asking all the wrong people to be in charge of healthcare because then there would there would be very little alternative medicine. It would all be conventional. So this corruption, you know, how does it connect back to people going to the doctor and getting treatment? Like, you know, which yeah. which areas are the most corrupt, I guess is what I'm right. asking. So what ends up happening is that someone says um it has to do with how doctors think about disease and then what doctors are trained to do in response to disease. And part of it is, is how the whole visit and philosophy is set up. Um, the Hippocrates also said the greatest medicine of all is teaching people how not to need it. Hmm. But this is a really bad business model. Um, <laughs> I can tell you that is definitely true. I, I don't make any money yeah. off this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But it's like, it's fascinating. You can't stop doing it. I mean, it's, and you know, for me to do what I'm doing, which is, you know, integrative alternative, whatever you want to call it medicine. I mean, there's a lot of people making a lot of money in it, but most of them are not doing that ethically. Hmm. And so as you begin to get more and more aware of what's going on, you're like, wow, this is a harder and harder and harder thing to do really well. Not impossible. You find a way, but it's incredible the sort of chicanery that you become aware of because you have the education to really analyze it. So the way that science is done, right, is people study things. They they build sort of a framework for understanding how and why this or that or whatever manifests, right? And then they find really, you know, the patient's coming to you with a problem, right? They want you to solve the problem. Um, But what that really means depends on sort of who you go to, right? So if someone becomes an acupuncturist, they want to solve problems with needles. Now, I'm oversimplifying it, right? Because many, many acupuncturists actually do no needlework and they all do herbs. Hmm. But let's say, you know, a doctor of Chinese medicine, they want to use, you know, needles or moxibustion or herbs or um, some kind of, you know, twina, massage, whatever, right? That's their toolbox. And you go to an herbalist and they want to treat you with herbs and you go to a, you know, Reiki healer and they want to treat you with Reiki, right? So people learn different modalities and come to different therapies based on, you know, their convictions, their history, their culture, whatever. But at the end of the day, the people who win out in terms of their, and I shouldn't say win out, but it's possible for one group to become very powerful economically because they're making a lot of money. But this doesn't imply that their therapeutics are superior. So if you look at, say, Let's look at antibiotics. I, and I'm the first person to say antibiotics are great. I use them to save people's lives on a regular basis. Yeah. And when we came out with people who want like a really good read should pick up Robert O. Becker's uh, The Body Electric because in the, and then read the preface because the preface is amazing. He writes about what it was like to be a medical student when penicillin was invented. And he writes about being on the wards and seeing people who he, he knew exactly what would happen when somebody came in with a pneumonia who was going to die from it. They knew when they would spike a fever and when they would start to, you know, shiver and when they would start to sweat and when they would start to, you know, breathe heavier and, and then cough up blood or whatever and then finally die. 
And they could tell you exactly what this looked like. And all of a sudden, they could pull all these people out of this illness with a little sprinkle of white powder, is how he describes it. So something like penicillin is obviously valuable, obviously effective. And so people seize them and they say, wow, this is amazing. And they make the cognitive error of thinking everything that this guy in this white coat has got in his, in his pillbox is amazing, right? Mm. And that's just not true. And if you look at, at, at our, our modern drugs, you know, over and over again, there's been one drug taken off the market or another, or we find this side effect or that side effect. And you see constantly in the headlines, oh, this drug that we approved 10 or 15 years ago now turns out to cause or contribute to dementia, osteoporosis, stomach ulcers, you know, fatigue, uh, like just the laundry list of symptoms that people really don't want, right? But in the meantime, the the modality or the tradition or philosophy or whatever has made somebody a lot of money and they've used that money to advertise and to convert people into the group. And then the real money comes when they begin to exclude people from the group and they begin to say, okay, only our club gets to practice medicine in this country or this state. And that's really, that was like the beginning of the end of good therapeutics because once the doctors were controlled and were really a guild, then very powerful vested interests could just pick the doctors who were going to do the research that was favorable to the industry. They could pay to suppress the research that was unfavorable and they could weed out the doctors who were skeptical. And that's really the process that's, that's happened over the last 60, 70, 80, hundred years. Um, and for people who are, are skeptical of that, they just need to go look at some of the official numbers uh, like Something like 50% of all cardiac catheterizations are considered to be unnecessary, even by the people who get paid to do them, mm. okay? And this is not the only procedure that's unnecessary. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here as a doctor who's worked in half a dozen different states in more than half a dozen different hospitals, and I've seen plenty of procedures happen that absolutely were not indicated. I've seen... And I've learned how the hospitals basically make money off of making more problems. And so you wanted to give me to give like people some really concrete advice here. And, and if, I mean, unless you've got questions about what I've said, why don't we just roll right into that? Yeah. Well, before we do, it sounds like what you're sure. saying is that basically we're getting less and less good therapies over time as this guild model or monopoly model or whatever you want to call it has been developed. Is that kind of accurate? Bingo. Okay. That is exactly right because the doctors can be fooled by the industry and the doctors don't have time to really go back and vet the ideas that they've been fed. And is this coming from Washington? Is this coming from the pharmaceuticals, the insurance companies? Like who are the, who are the big ones pushing this? So all of them together. Uh, and it, it takes a long time to kind of break down each one of them. I did on our last podcast in a little bit of detail, but yeah. you know, basically they all operate as monopolies. They are, or, or cartels. And so they have no incentive to truly compete and offer a valuable and, and worthwhile product. And, and then what they're really doing is they're, they're creating an, an, like a, a class of people who can't afford any of it, but those people are so sick that there's no way you could insure them, right? It's like, like the idea to me, I mean, I mean, that's why the country's going broke. Hmm. You know, it's not that the private industry is going broke. They're making tons of money. And the reason they're making tons of money is that the, the, the shrinking proportion of the populace who are healthy enough to put, to bring in like good money is still paying an incredible premium for health insurance. And everyone who's already too sick and broke is just insured by the government or will be, you know, in a month or six months or a year. Okay. Um, and so in that way, they're basically like, they're basically just, they're shrinking the number of people that they're, they're taking money from. But every year it's way, way, way more. And especially as the cost of living rises, that's just more and more a percentage of someone's paycheck. Yeah. I, I really like kind of what you've put together here because I mean, I, I was an economics major, and so I, I definitely have some mm. some libertarian roots, you know, about government mm -hmm. uh, intervention yeah. and all that stuff. And so I, I really enjoy kind of the structure you put together. And, and it's it's often what I've thought, too, which is almost like this whole, you know, industry, whatever you want to call it, monopoly, is built on antibiotics. Like, you take antibiotics away, and man, 
like so much of the trust that we give to the medical industry is just gone. I mean, what, you know, antibiotics enable all the surgeries. It enables so much of what is able to be done in the medical world. Um, I don't know. That was just one of the thoughts I had um, a while ago. And, and it's interesting to hear you kind of mirroring that, like, you know, using antibiotics as the example of like, look, this gets them trust. People trust them because of these antibiotics. Exactly. And then yeah. they can do whatever they want, you know in a certain sense. You're exactly right. I mean, and, and what we can do in, you know, in, in hospitals and emergency care settings, uh, where people are really sick is amazing. You know, I mean, it's not an exaggeration that doctors and nurses save lives every day all the time, but you know, it's what kind of health they restore them to. That is a much bigger, more important question. Uh, you know, because it's all well and good to save people, but you've got to have a system to not only get them back from the brink of death, but also to really the pink of health. So, yeah, so let's jump into the the concrete stuff. Right. So people need to understand that at the end of the day, the whole system is being gradually pushed in a direction that makes the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies more and more money. This means that a couple of things have happened. So, and also the the, the hospital corporations, because the people running the hospital corporations are not a bunch of, you know, like, uh, like the, they're not like they work for the Salvation Army. They drive a Lexus. They have a second home. They expect to be paid six figures a year. Yeah, more than a lot of the doctors, in fact. So, how do you make the most money as, say, a hospital? Well, you get lots and lots of general practitioners in a very broad geographic region. You make sure that there's lots of regulations and rules and laws and a very high cost of doing business so that all the smaller hospitals and clinics and private practices that are competing with you shut down. You can then acquire those assets at a very low cost, including the doctors and nurses and experts who worked there. Now you've got this big system that's set up that's regional. And what this means is that if the doctors don't wanna work for you because they don't like your corporate structure or your bonus package or whatever, they either have to sell their house and move to another place or set up shop and they can't do that or are afraid to do that because the overhead is so high to get into the game. Hmm. Now what you do is you take the, the primary care doctor's job and you give them an insanely short amount of time to do it in. Now, the reality is that, you know, th- there's a couple things going on here. One, primary care doctor's most people want a solution. And what I've noticed is if you walk into the room and the patient gives you a problem to solve, the fastest way to solve it is to give them a prescription. The patient is happy then. The patient's like, oh, great. The doctor has given me the solution. I will go to the pharmacy. I will fill it. I will make it happen, right? But the bigger discussion is why do you actually have this problem? And what can we do to change your diet and your lifestyle for you to not have it again? Now, a lot of people don't want to have that conversation leaving aside entirely the, the moral hazards of giving people medicine when they really need diet and lifestyle change. At the end of the day, it's not a surprise. It should not be a surprise to anyone that as doctors, primary care doctors have had less and less time to motivate their patients to change and empower their patients with information to do better so they don't be, they won't be as sick. The problem list for patients grows as does the prescription list. These things basically grow in parallel. Then you end up with side effects from the medications that, you know, result in, you know, complications that you then cover up with other meds. And this is sort of a predictable, um, I call it circling the drain. This is where the patients start to really circle the drain of poor health. Um, now, the other thing that you can do to get out of the or satisfy the patient is to say, I will order a test which can be a CT, an MRI, an X-ray, a lab test. You can order a referral, right? Mm-hmm. And say, oh, you need to go see the smarter doctor than me over at the specialty clinic, right? Yep. This satisfies the patient. It's like, ah, I will see the whatever, you know? I can't tell you how many times I'm like, I know what's wrong with you. I know what your diagnosis is. You don't need a test. You don't need a lab. You don't need a fancy $5,000 MRI. And the patient's like, I don't care what you think. They don't, they usually aren't that rude. But they, they're like, I don't care what you think. I think I should see the neurologist. You know, hmm. leaving again aside all the moral issues there, um, basically what ends up happening is the primary care doctor gets burned out on trying to take care of people and just starts writing prescriptions like really fast and doing labs and imaging really fast now and and issuing tons of referrals. So it's not uncommon for a patient who's really sick to have, you know, 
five or more subspecialists working on their case on a regular basis to have no answers and to not feel any better. Now, some of them will get some symptom relief from the medications you prescribe, but wait six months, wait a year, wait 10 years. The disease is going to get worse. The symptoms are going to get worse. The meds are not going to work as well. And then the patient's in an even worse position. Most doctors are aware that this is happening and they're aware that their patients really need to change their diets and their lifestyles. But the reality is they've never been trained to learn how to motivate and inspire people to actually do that. And one of the really interesting things to do coming out of conventional medicine is to realize it matters far more how well you can build a rapport with your patients to motivate them to change than it does necessarily to have the most airtight plan for getting them healthy. So that's really how the hospitals and, 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 and whatever make the most money is they create this closed system that's a geographic monopoly. They own all the subspecialists. They own all the primary care doctors. And they, they don't resolve any issues. Then they don't give any doctors any time or leeway to do that. Okay. And that's why people end up on more and more and more prescriptions with more and more tests. Like they come to me, they have like a three inch, you know, three inch thick chart. It's like 400 pages of stuff, you know, and they're like, what's wrong with me? And, and I'm like, you can't tell me and you've had 400 pages worth of stuff done to you. That seems like a total fail, right? Yeah, it's um, pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, it's not good. And I'm not trying to like throw my colleagues under the bus. Like we're doing what we've been trained to do, what we're getting paid to do. And at the end of the day, I don't think anyone should fault anyone from doing what they get paid to do. If you aren't happy with the results, you know, America, pay them to do something else, right? Yeah. So what parts would you say are more prone to this? I mean, is it just all of medicine or is it, you know, especially concentrated in cancer therapy? Is it, I mean, where is uh, it? So it's really important to pay attention to what someone is getting paid to do, right? Your primary care doctor, you know, if they're getting paid by the hospital system, then they're really getting paid to make the hospital system money, which doesn't include getting you better, right? Hmm. Because then you don't go see all the subspecialists. Um, you know, if it's a surgeon, they get paid to cut. That's not necessarily a bad thing because there's a lot of surgeries that people need. But the vast majority of surgeries being done in this country are for things that are entirely preventable. And even the ones that are and that are sort of, you know, sort of preventable, right? Like I don't have an airtight game plan to prevent all pancreatic cancer or all this cancer or all this disease or that disease. And I certainly don't have a plan to prevent all, you know, traumatic, you know, injuries that people will will endure. And so surgery will always be a, a, an important thing that I'm grateful that we have, right? But at the same time, you know, I look at something like bariatric surgery. You know, bariatric surgery is being, and that's, you know, for, uh, for weight loss surgery. Yeah. That's the tummy, it's, stomach, uh, it's the stomach clipping thing, right? So there's a ton of different ways to do it. Um, there's partial gastrectomy, there's gastric sleeve, there's gastric banding, there's, uh, and then, yeah, so we, those are varying, um, degrees of morbidity associated with them. But at the end of the day, I look at what a lot of people do to try and lose weight in this country. And they're like, yeah, I cut calories and I went to the gym. I didn't lose any weight. And I'm like, and after everything that I've studied and learned in 15 years of following not only the conventional medical stuff, but also the unconventional medical stuff, I have to ask those people, did you try sauna? Did you try blocking blue light at night? Did you try limiting your exposure to non-native EMF? Did you try, you know, intermittent fasting? Did you try a ketogenic diet? Did you try this? I mean, there's just such an incredible variety of tools we have to help people lose weight. Right. And a lot of these folks, you know, you look at what they're still eating and you're like, well, no wonder you're not losing weight. Right. Like this isn't a mystery. And I don't think we should do a $30,000 surgery for it. I think maybe we should really have a hard, hard conversation about what your priorities really are in this life. Um, so, so long as you're paying attention to how your doctor's being paid, you're way ahead of the game. And, you know, it's, and the thing is you need doctors to be believers in what they do. Otherwise, they're not going to do a good job of it. But there's a natural relationship that ought to exist between the general practitioner and the subspecialist, where the general practitioner goes to the subspecialist for advice, but is also able and has the time and the training to basically second guess the subspecialist and say, I think this is a bad plan. Um, because otherwise, you end up, I think, with a lot of conflicts of interest. 
you know, let's say that, that somebody uh, ends up needing or getting a surgical evaluation, just, you know, seeing the surgeon. Well, I think they ought to be able to go back and have time to go back to their primary care doctor and run the plan by the primary care doctor because maybe the primary care doctor knows well enough to know that the surgery is not a good idea. You know, if you can get your, if you can work closely with a primary care doctor to lose weight rather than go to a bariatric surgery clinic and get surgery, that's a, in my opinion, a much better solution. So how is your primary care doctor supposed to do any of that critical thinking when you've only got a 15-minute visit to spend with them? So it sounds like subspecialists are probably more risky than general practitioners in general for, for kind of dealing with this corruption. So I mean, what I tell people the most important thing for them to have is a thinking, intelligent, independent physician who they're paying. Because, and I mean, I really mean directly. Because if you're not paying them directly, then they're spending a ton of time satisfying your insurance company and, you know, figuring out deductibles and this and that and the other thing. And that that distracts them from taking care of you. And if you don't play the game with the insurance companies, if you don't satisfy all their whatever metrics and opinions and this and that and the other thing, then all of a sudden you get slammed. You know, you're, you're not making any money. You can't keep the doors open. Um, a lot of primary practices, primary care practices went out of business in the last 20 or 30 years between increasing government regulation and harder and harder to deal with insurance companies. And um, this basically sets patients up for being on the back burner um, because ultimately it's who's paying your doctor who calls the shots. And so, you know, if, if, if this doctor, if a doctor can make as much money um, satisfying the insurance companies, but practicing worse medicine, they're actually going to attract a ton of patients because the patients don't know any better, which goes back to you know my whole point that I started with, which is people make really bad decisions about what good medicine is. And one of the things that strikes me all the time is that I, I have patients say, oh, so-and-so is such a good doctor. And I'm like, you have no idea what that means. <laughs> like you have no medical background, no knowledge. You don't really mean that they're a good doctor. You mean they're nice to you. And I'm not gainsaying the importance of that because really someone being nice to you is the most, and in some cases, the only indicator or thing that you can rely on, piece of information you can rely on as to whether or not that person actually cares about you and is going to do what's right for you. The reason it's important, to, I think, to pay your doctor cash um, directly is that they work for you and you can ask them anything you want and they'll give you a straight answer. You know, I can't tell you how many, like I can't be honest with people about some of the subspecialists that I've worked with in the past because I'm afraid that I would get cut because ultimately I'm not as valuable to the organizations I've worked for in the past as the subspecialist is. And over time, what has happened is that really bright, really intelligent people have tended to go away from primary care and into subspecialization because it requires more critical thinking. You have more autonomy. It has a better paycheck, all those different things. But this has left primary. I mean, who do you know who says, oh, yeah, I have a great primary care doctor? I mean, those people are rare. Hmm. People are desperate for good primary care doctors. And what they really see as being valuable in their primary care doctor is not only somebody who cares, but somebody who's really smart and motivated and is willing to do what I'm talking about, which is say, you know, I know that so-and-so thinks you ought to do such and such, but I really don't think it's a good idea. And that's so, – so as far as who's who you've got to watch out for, it's more so you've got to watch out for who's paying the bills. And so one of the famous or most well, let's say, entrenched um, conflicts in medicine today is between the alternative cancer world and the conventional cancer world. Hmm. Well, in the conventional cancer world, chemo is really, really, really big business. So I'm not surprised that there's a lot of conflict between those who prescribe chemo, very expensive, and those who say that there's better options out there that do not involve chemotherapy. I'm not saying chemo is bad. I mean, it's funny. I actually just saw a patient recently who I said, oh, yeah, the chemo you got is a great chemo. It's really benign. It's well tolerated. It works incredibly well. There's plenty of chemo out there that's fantastic, but there's also tons of it that's garbage. And I mean, like, I would never give it to anyone. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and I'm not telling people to, like, ignore their oncologist. Lord knows I you have to make your own decisions, but, um, but there's just a lot, a lot going on here that people don't understand. And, you know, I'll give you a, like a, just a con really concrete example. I see plenty of people who are on like 
chemotherapy that's never going to cure them, but makes them feel horrible. And they're on it because there's some kind of like two week or six week longevity benefit. If you want to spend your money that way, that's fine. But what people don't realize is they're paying such high premiums because somebody's taking that chemo drug. And if you could just have the option of saying, you know, I don't want like if people could say on their insurance form, I don't want to pay for any therapies that are not going to be curative, the cost of healthcare in this country might be cut in half overnight. It's that much money being thrown away on 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 cases where we know the mortality is like 99, 95% in the next six months. How can people find out about these chemos that, you know, are just so awful? I mean, is there a resource they can go to? Well, I think the most important thing to ask your this is actually, it's it's really about, to me, the patient having a conversation with their doctors. Because you also don't know how well someone's going to tolerate something until you give them something. So let's say that, you know, you get to give 10 people the same chemo um, and uh, and it makes like seven of them horribly ill, right? Then the conversation is, okay, what's the upside of the chemo versus the side effect? Most people stop medications that they can't tolerate. They stop medications um, that are not worth it to them, what they're getting. So they say, okay, I know this chemo is going to give me an extra six weeks, but or supposedly or on average, right? But it's just not worth the side effects, right? And where this also comes out is, or the other complication here is that people can't see what things cost. They're just covered by insurance or not. And that's about transparency. That's about the insurance industry being a cartel. It's about big pharma being a cartel. All of that has to do with just obfuscation that is really fundamentally unfree, unfree market, um, and really about collusion between these industries and the government. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about was uh, these autoimmune drugs. Now, last time sure. last time on the podcast, you mentioned that these autoimmune drugs were kind of being targeted at women in particular. Are there other challenges that women face in particular in this medical system, you know, along with these autoimmune drugs? Wow, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, if the answer is yes, both for women and for men. Um, I think... Uh, unique challenges, unique ways that women are being, and I think at the end of the day, what you're really asking me is what's being foisted on women. That's really bad medicine. Yes. And what's being foisted on men as well. Sure. So, um, so women, uh, a lot, I mean, if I had to guess, I'd say like maybe 50% to 80%, I don't know, of money being spent on female healthcare today is in one way or another reproductive. In nature, mm-hmm. I think that's I don't I don't know it's just off the cuff estimate, um, but it's an enormous amount, right? Um, I think that women are, get told that uh, IUDs and birth control pills are harmless and safe and fine and whatever. And I cannot tell you how many people come to me and get better when they're off their OCPs, and who have complications from different kinds of IUDs. I won't name them because I don't want to be sued for defamation. But when women ask me what I think they ought to do for their contraception, I just say, your fertility is part of your health. There's nothing but barrier contraception that's not going to have a negative impact on your health long term. And if you look at the way that these, I mean, the really, the whole reason that women are on fake hormones, right? And so bioidentical hormones are hormones that are identical to what's produced in the human body, right? Yeah. Now, that's not as healthy, shall we say, as just relying on your normal, natural, endogenous hormone production. But if we were going to give someone or boost someone's hormone levels, I think it, you know, logically one would use the thing that's most like what their body makes. You can't patent what's built in nature. That's why, you know, Monsanto can patent GMO corn, but they can't patent corn. So if you change a hormone a little bit, you make it something that's patentable. So all birth control pills, all, you know, hormones that are being hawked by big pharma, they're fake hormones. Yeah. And they have incredibly deleterious effects on people's physiology. And what I find remarkable about this is the only reason that they're hawking these fake hormones on people is that the bioidentical ones are never going to make anyone some like tons of money. Progesterone, bioidentical progesterone was at some point so cheap to buy 
that they could only manufacture it in Mexico at a profit. <laughs> That's how cheap bioidentical hormones is. And so women are going out and spending tons of money on this and not realizing that there's an even cheaper option in bioidentical hormones. In reality, I don't think I know of anyone using bioidentical hormones for um, as oral contraceptives, although I, I suppose it's theoretically possible. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, and the same thing is true of the menopause medications, right? Lots of women feel a little bit better on Premarin or Prempro or whatever, but over and over again, and, and overwhelmingly in the menopause medicine community, the things that work best are the bioidentical hormones. And they, this is one reason why big pharma is constantly targeting compounding pharmacies. They make it harder for, because so for people who I guess don't know, it's to make bioidentical hormones, you've got to have a compounding pharmacy. And in a single state, there might be half a dozen mm. at most. There's probably states where there isn't a single one for certain compounds. And these are different from your Rite Aids, your CVSs, your Walgreens. They have specialized pharmacists and specialized equipment. They have to meet all these special rules and regulations. This goes back to owning all the business, right? You'll notice the hospitals are now setting up their own pharmacies. They're competing with the Walmarts, the Sam's Clubs, the best, the the um, CVSs and Walgreens and whatever. And and the 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 way that the drug companies are reimbursing or allow or the way that drugs are being priced the retail pharmacies are all going out of business and even Rite Aid struggling, right? A huge national chain is struggling. So anyway, uh, I think, I think people, women ought to know about how bioidentical hormones are cheaper. Uh, they're perfectly affordable or cheaper. They're, they're much in my opinion, safer and more benign. And these OCPs and IUDs that release hormones have all these negative side effects. And I just, I would never trust them in a woman who I cared about and I don't recommend them to my patients. Okay. Um, that's the biggest thing for women. The other big thing that women, you know, struggle with is autoimmunity in their, in their youth, other than of course the, you know, bread and butter diseases of aging, which really affect men and women almost equally. And those autoimmune issues are all environmental in nature. You know, it's a result of living a, a, a life that's divorced from nature, eating, you know, an unhealthy diet and living, you know, not sleeping much and this and that and the other thing. You could go on and on about that. And then for men, really the biggest thing is this epidemic of, um, I mean, men are, are the most striking thing to me about men and the drug companies and what drugs they're getting on now is that more and more men have erectile dysfunction at younger and younger ages. So when I was young, Bob Dole was the guy who was the spokesperson for Viagra. Yeah. Why? Because their target demographic was wealthy, older men who had, you know, had successful careers, I'm sure. And who, you know, I don't know, for all I know, it's like they were targeting Republicans, but I don't think it was a partisan thing. <laughs> I think this Bob Dole happened to be a Republican candidate for president. But anyway, they were, that's who they were targeting with Viagra. Now they're targeting young men. And they're, if you look at their advertising, you know, for like Roman, it's like this guy who gets up on on the on camera is like I'm a young basically it's like he might as well say this hi I'm a young bright intelligent well educated young man who looks like the picture of health but for some reason I couldn't get it up and if this is you buy my product because I can help you get it up with drugs without paying attention to or figuring out what your real problem is mm. right because if their profit model is get people through the door on erectile dysfunction medications, their profit model is not fix erectile dysfunction. So like, see how you got to pay attention to who you're paying here. You're paying someone in that if you go to Roman and you get whatever you're paying them to give you ED meds, you're not paying them to fix your ED. Like come to somebody like me if you want to fix that, because I'll figure it out or at least I'll give it a really ridiculously, you know, serious try Long, and I'll try, like, rack yeah. my brain and, and think about it and research it and try and figure it out. Um, cause I don't make any money selling people erectile dysfunction meds. Uh, and I, I don't, you know, people don't come to me because I, I prescribe those. They come to me because they want to figure out what's wrong with them. Anyone with a prescription pad can write a prescription for Cialis, but you've got to be willing to work hard and study, you know, spend extra hours at work and like read, you know, medical research if you want to actually figure out how to reverse the problem. 
So, you know, the fact that men are having more and more trouble with their erections at younger and younger ages indicates that men are falling apart in a wide variety of ways, right? Their testosterone is declining. I remember seeing some like BuzzFeed headline where they tested a bunch of young millennials who worked at some, you know, I can't remember what company it was. They basically tested a a bunch of young millennial males and their testosterone was low and they didn't even know it, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you look at what's changed, right? What's changed in the last 50 or 60 years? Well, kids are eating fake food. They're living under fake light. They're indoors all the time. They have these wacky circadian rhythms. They're constantly exposed to wireless radiation in some form or another. So you have all these new factors in the environment that are that are at play, and any one of which can alter sexual function. I mean, after all, it's the light that animals live under that determines their sexual and reproductive behavior. And, you know, for some reason, people, you know, don't seem to appreciate this about themselves. You know, it's like we're animals too. We should expect light to change how we, how we mate, how we behave, how we reproduce. So let's say for argument's sake, uh, we have this same system, you know, that you've been describing for the next 100 years, you know, somehow it doesn't change at all. Are there broad guidelines that people can know about or adopt that would help them navigate that? And maybe that's, you know, don't go to the doctor unless you absolutely need it. I don't know. But what would those guidelines be? So medicine's really good. Modern medicine's really good at keeping people from dying. So nobody makes any money in this equation when you die. So what's everyone freaking out about? They're all freaking out about what might kill the patient, right? So um, you go to the dermatologist, and they check your whole body. They take fancy photos that are high def. They pay attention to the little moles. They cut those off. They freeze off the other suspicious lesions. They send them to a pathologist. They get back to you with a report, right? Because if you die of skin cancer, the dermatologist can get sued for malpractice or negligence or whatever, right? And they're afraid of that. Mm. And they also get a bad reputation. I mean, how many people do you need to have die of melanoma as a dermatologist to get a bad reputation? I don't know, but it's probably not that many, right? Um same thing is true with, uh, say, um, like a surgeon, right? Like it's, it's an uncomfortable conversation for doctors to have in the doctor's lounge about which cardiac surgeon say is the best, hmm. or maybe which one you wouldn't have do your mother's cardiac bypass surgery, but those conversations happen and they're real. So, so this goes back to just paying attention to who's getting paid for, for doing what, that's where it's like, if you go to your primary care doctor who's working for the big box medical clinic, they don't care what's cardiac surgeon's best for you. They just care that you get into the OR with a cardiac surgeon to get a procedure. Because Dr. You know, Baminski doesn't make them any more money for doing a cabbage than Dr. You know, Giselnik, <laughs> even if they're radically different in terms of their outcomes. That might change. But at the end of the day, a cardiac surgeon doing a surgery makes the hospital more money, even if they don't do a very good job. If you go to an independent physician who's got time to kind of vet people around town and figure out who's really good, totally different game plan. Because when I, and in some cases you can do this within the system, like you can choose which subspecialist your patient's going to go see, but less and less autonomy is being given to, to doctors in those systems. And moreover, the doctors are not incentivized to figure out who the best cardiac surgeon is. They don't make any more money if they know who the best subspecialists are. And when you get out into private practice, what you begin to realize is that when you refer a patient to somebody who's really good and gets them a really good outcome, you look great. Mm. You get almost as much credit as the person who does the good work. And there's like one example after another, like, my my cousin came to me, had some shoulder issues, and his orthopedic surgeon friend who's who I mean, they ski together. They're not it's not like the guy is, you know, looking to make a quick buck off of my cousin. I'm sure he's a good surgeon, a good person. But his he just said, Look, you have worn out shoulders because you've lived a tough life. It's time for you to get them replaced. I, I counseled my cousin very differently, gave him a bunch of things he could do for himself that were non-invasive, didn't require a prescription, blah, blah, blah. You know, a year later, his shoulders have never, haven't felt better in years and he didn't need a surgery. So why did I know how to do that? Well, I, you know, I spend my time reading journal articles, reading textbooks, talking to people who think outside the box. And this goes across the board. You know, I was just sitting down with my friend Morley Robbins, who was telling, he loves telling this story about how he went to a chiropractor for his frozen shoulder, right? 
and he didn't believe in chiropractics. And then his frozen shoulder got fixed by the chiropractor who he subsequently married. So, you know, this is, this is basically how, how it is, you know, a chiropractor gets paid to get you better. And the tool in their toolbox is, well, they have a lot of tools. Some of them basically practices like they don't actually do a lot of adjusting of the spine, but, but at the end of the day, they're not apt to refer you to a surgeon. They're apt to try and fix it themselves. And that's why I keep coming back to this, but paying your doctor makes a ton of sense. They're going to try and get you better as cheaply as possible, as effectively as possible when someone else is, and there's a lot of other people paying the doctor, you know, on your behalf, you may become meat on their table. Okay. So basically be aware of who's getting paid by who, um, would probably be one of the first things you'd really want to know in any situation. Right. Right. And then for me, you know, and speaking as somebody who has to guide their family through this, but who obviously isn't treating his family as his patients, you know, I want them to be going back with the subspecialist's opinion to the doctor that they pay with cash. Because, you know, the, that, and that's the really the thing we've lost is we've lost the general practitioner who was smart and savvy and willing to do a lot of work to try and figure out what's best for their patient and say, you know, I don't think the subspecialist is right. Um, or I think you need a different opinion or a different subspecialist, or I think you should go see this person in particular because that person was really, and that group of people was really the break on the kind of runaway train that is doing too many procedures, prescribing too many medications, doing too many tests. Hmm. Um, and, and that, that class of people, that group of doctors has really been destroyed because they've made the, the job practically impossible to do. Uh, everyone in primary care is either retiring or burning out Yeah. or starting their own practices and doing their own thing. Yeah. Or, you know, leaving medicine, which is actually much more common than people realize. So I know you only have a few minutes left. Um, so I just want to ask one last question, which is basically how to select a place to get treatment. So obviously there's a standard of care in the medical system, which says, you know, if you, if you break your arm in California or in Oklahoma, the process should look the same. You know, you're not getting an amputation here and a cast here. Um, so you know, if you can select, you know, certain hospitals or if you can go to certain states, are there guidelines there that people should be aware of? Are certain states better than other states to get treatment in? Or, you know, is the county uh, hospital better to go to versus some, you know, private one? Or, or So for-profit hospitals make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Those places can be really crazy. If I had a choice between a for-profit hospital and not-for-profit hospital, I would take the not-for-profit hospital 100%. Okay. Um, the other, and that goes also for outpatient clinics and whatever. Um, the other thing that I think people really just need to keep track of is the the basics of medicine. You know, really smart doctors who are who are really putting their patients first, I think, they, they recognize, and I, I quote this all the time, it's, I mean, I just, I'm obsessed with this quote. Hippocrates said the greatest medicine of all is teaching people how not to need it. So if you're going to a doctor who's not teaching you how to need medicine, then are you really going to a good doctor? It's funny, you know, the doctors who really want to do that, do it, you know. We go to the gym, we learn how to lift, we learn how to intermittent fast, we try the ketogenic, we try all this stuff. Because we think it's fascinating mm. and we can't stop ourselves. And even if I'm only got, if I, you know, you saw me in some conventional setting where I only had 15 minutes, I'd still try to do a good job. Um, and that means when you're, you know, when a doctor puts somebody on a medicine, the question should be, well, when can I stop this? And if the doctor's like, well, never, then you should ask them, why? You know, what's the real problem here? And the thing that, the, the the alternative clinics that I'm wary of are the ones that send people out on a ton of supplements um, and just expect them to take those supplements for the rest of their lives. I mean, I'm a minimalist when it comes to all this stuff. I want to measure labs. I want to quantify what the levels are. I want to have a goal level for something to come back to, like say a magnesium or a vitamin D or a vitamin A. 
and I want to make a change with the patient that relies on things like whole foods or lifestyle changes first and then supplements if I can't do what I need to do with, you know, more natural means. And then, you know, you remeasure and you retest. Uh, and if the patient doesn't want to say eat beef liver or full fat dairy or, you know, drink cod liver oil, you got to have some conversations about, well, you know, what's the best supplement for you to do this with? Um, and you know, or, you know, is, are, am I even the right practitioner to work with you? Because, you know, you want to be vegan and I'm telling you it's not working for you. Do you need to find somebody else who's going to help you figure that out if it's possible? Um, but really the greatest medicine of all teaching people how not to need it. And if your doctor's not on that train, find one who is. All right. I think that's a good place to stop. Dr. Leland Stillman. All right. Thanks for coming on, man. This has been great. Good. I'm glad you've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the interview. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope you like or let's say are tolerating uh, the slower pace of episode release. I am definitely getting some time to relax from the frantic pace of research I was doing uh, earlier in the year. I look back at at what I've done over the last year of how many episodes I wrote and researched. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's an awesome accomplishment that I'm proud of myself for, but it was getting a little nuts. So it has been a great recharge for me. A quick reminder to shop through our Amazon link on our website. Super easy to go to quackspodcast.com and just click the link on the right. It helps with hosting and that kind of thing. Anyways, that is all for me, folks. Be well.